This episode of the Police One Podcast is sponsored by Officer Store. Learn more about getting the gear you need at prices you can afford by visiting officerstore.com. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to Policing Matters on policeone.com, or maybe you're watching us on the YouTube channel, the Police One YouTube channel where you can see me and my guest, and you'll want to see my guest today, so stick around. Law enforcement officers may encounter situations where an individual may be unresponsive, appearing confused perhaps, excited, or acting in a, in a manner that doesn't quite fit the situation. How can we do an assessment? How can we make one to make sure that we connect with the person? Well, people with intellectual and dis Developmental Disabilities, or IDD, continue to be overrepresented in the criminal justice system as suspects, defendants, and incarcerated persons, often because of the manifestations of their disability that can cause suspicion. Well, this is especially true for individuals with invisible disabilities, such as autism. People with IDD may unknowingly confess to a crime they didn't commit. After arrest, the problem worsens as they often cannot assist their own defense and often alienate jurists. Today's guest is Leanne McKingsley. She is the Senior Director of Disability at the ARC and Justice Initiatives and the lead for the National Center on Criminal Justice and Disability. Well, welcome to Policing Matters, Leanne McKingsley. Hi, thank you for inviting me today. No, it is an important topic that we should be talking about. We don't talk about it. And you have a great understanding. Our hope today is to give our listeners a better understanding of individuals who have intellectual and de developmental disabilities or IDD. So to set the stage, um, can you tell us about what kinds of people we're talking about here? Your organization represents an array of people and disabilities. Uh, our audience is mostly law enforcement officers. Um, let's make sure we're talking about the same things. Absolutely. And I think that can actually be very confusing uh, for officers and other people in the community that don't really understand or know anyone that have an intellectual or developmental disability. And I will be saying IDD for short, just to um, make things a little easier. But um, people with IDD can often be confused uh, with people with mental illness or mental health disabilities too. So that's one of the things that we often will um, bring out in our training. And just a little bit about the ARC, because some of your listeners may not be familiar with us. The ARC is over 70 years old. Um, we really are at the intersection of providing support and advocacy to people with intellectual and developmental disabilities and their families. So we do all sorts of advocacy. We really try to um, be um, right in the mix of where people's needs are not being met and making sure that, especially in the criminal justice system, they are able to access the system as anyone else would. And we have almost 600 chapters throughout the country. So you may have a chapter near you. And we like to really get our chapters connected with local law enforcement to see how it is that they can address some of these, these issues in their community. So that's a little bit about the ARC. Um, I should say that 10 years ago, we got a grant 
to create the National Center on Criminal Justice and Disability. And the reason that's so important is just what you said already, that so many people are invisible. Um, when I first came to the work 27 years ago at the ARC, I realized uh, through death penalty cases that really nobody was real, even knowing that people with IDD were on death row and then later they were exonerated because they were uh, forced into false confessions. So that's what really got me started in this work. And I realized, okay, there's gotta be something more we can do. We've gotta educate folks about this population that a lot of people never see. Yeah, so, you know, across the board in, in law enforcement, we've seen places like Rikers Island and um, in uh, Cook County in uh, Illinois and Chicago, and even in our Los Angeles County Jail, this high population of people with uh, mental illness and people with disabilities. How are people with IDD victimized in the U.S.? Are we talking about them as suspects and inmates? Yes, I'm glad you brought that up. That's another reason I that we really wanted to focus in on this issue in our country and create a center is we need more data on this topic. Now we do have some data uh, from the Bureau of Justice Statistics that show just how often people with disabilities are victimized. So we know that they are overrepresented in our criminal justice system, both as victims and as suspects and inmates. And uh, this data really leads us to um, wanting to think not only about how are we addressing people with mental health disability in, in the system, but also those with IDD. And usually in the data, uh, they refer to cognitive disability. So that can be really broad in its mm -hmm. approach. And we're looking at how can we get data that more is specific to say people with autism or people with specific types of disabilities and how that can help us create better responses. Um, in these situations. So we do know the numbers are, are very high. It's uh, two in 10 um, prison and jail inmates um, have some type of disability and also victims, uh, for ex example, just sexual violence. We know that people with intellectual disabilities specifically are seven times more likely to experience sexual violence. So we do a lot of work at the center. We have six, seven projects going on right now, um, focused on supporting sexual assault victims, as well as making sure we're getting officers trained on these topics. Wow, those are numbers I did not realize. That's incredible. What should officers be thinking about when they approach someone who may seem out of sorts? Uh, mm -hmm. Like I described in the intro, maybe that it just isn't so consistent with the situation at hand. Yeah, that's a great question. And that is one that we really focus on in our training that we provide nationally. And I'll break that down into four key points. Um, first of all, if at all possible, slow things down. If you have any um, inkling that something might be going on and you're not sure um, if it could be disability related, um, and it's hard to know, right? It could be drugs could be involved. I mean, there's all kinds of things that officers come upon the scene and they're not sure. But if at all possible to slow things down and really start kind of taking in what's going on, are there other people around you can talk to, for example, who may know about the individual? And then secondly, um, consider if disability is playing a role. Officers are trained to control situations. And yet when there's a disability involved, that can, that can backfire. 
um, because the more you might want to try to control someone, the more that can create that fight or flight. And we see that in people with intellectual developmental disabilities. And so the more you can create space, back off, these are all examples of accommodations that can be used uh, when officers come upon a scene and they really want to keep everyone safe at the scene. Um, and then uh, the third thing is using those accommodations. So I mentioned some of those, but other examples are like mi minimizing the, the sound around them. So turning off the sirens, giving that space, asking support people um, to, to help if at all possible. And then lastly, calling for CIT or a mobile crisis unit, calling for support so that you're not the only one there or you're bringing in someone who has experience and um, more of a comfort level in working with people with disabilities. Um, I think everyone should get training on this. It, it's important for officers to really have um, at least a basic understanding. And so in a minute, you know, we can talk about some of the solutions and training that's available. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned CIT or crisis intervention training. I see the overlapping with the, a lot of the individuals that we have uh, encounter on the streets with uh, mental health issues, people in crisis, maybe even, um, you know, dual situations of mental health issues. Uh, combined with drugs or alcohol, um, you know, self-medicating people. Um, so good to have that CIT training and, and people who can uh, do exactly what you just talked about as far as backing off and going in slow and, and uh, bringing down uh, the, the volatility of the situation. What can be some of the questions that an officer might ask an individual um, in, in either in crisis or somebody who's just not non-responsive or unresponsive? Yeah, um, I, I think one of the first things is knowing what questions to ask when you're thinking about if someone could have a disability. So um, first of all, just thinking is disability present? And rather than having to ask someone directly because they may or may not wanna tell you, um, you can ask other questions like, where do you live? Um, you could ask about, um, do you have a job? All of these things may help cue the person to understand, oh, they live in a group home or, um, you know, they may, they may not be working right now. You know, sadly, the employment rate for people with disabilities is very low. Like um, we have 70% uh, of folks do not have jobs. So that's another issue that we work on at the ARC. But um, asking questions like that, do you get social services or, you know, are you getting a certain type of service? And that can help officers understand. Um, and then after that, just, um, you know, trying to get an idea of, I think it's really like building trust. What is a hobby that you have? What do you like to do? Even a question as simple as that can alert officers to um, if the individual um, may, you know, for example, likes to play certain cards or do certain things that may not seem age appropriate for that age of a person. Mm -hmm. Things like that can tip an officer off to go, okay, hold on a second. Let me let me do a little bit more digging here and see if um, if there is a disability I need to be aware of. Yeah, so officers may be called to a call for service of a suspicious person or somebody acting strangely. And rather than go straight to the crime at hand or the, the suspicion, but to go in 
low with some foundational questions and and sort of uh, have the individual feeling comfortable maybe and and thinking about the questions. Yeah, absolutely. And that, you know, we know that that can save a lot of heartache and a lot of potential problems. I mean, for this population, de-escalation is the name of the game. Every opportunity we want to think about how can we de-escalate a situation and for people with IDD, you know, a lot of times that does mean backing off, giving space and trying to get as much information as you can from others um, and really listening to what is going on. We've dealt with a lot of cases where if those kind of accommodations were, would have been put into place that could have potentially saved a life. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we wanna make sure that officers are equipped and they have the information they need so that they feel comfortable when they go into these types of situations. For sure. And it would cause uh, a paradigm shift by the responding officers. Uh, you know, law enforcement officers are problem solvers. They want to get, you know, they want to be efficient, get right to the meat of the issue. But this would cause uh, officers to have some more thoughtfulness, uh, think of, you know, be more observing about the individual's behaviors and and then going in uh, with appropriate questions. Yeah, absolutely. And and one of the examples I was going to mention, you talked about CIT training. So um, I wanted to mention some of the work that we've been doing around that. And I know you're many are familiar with CIT, crisis intervention teams. Um, so what the project that we've been working on in the past couple of years is called CRIT. So um, this is crisis response and intervention training. And um, this is similar to CIT, but it does have a couple of uh, differences. It was built on the CIT model, but it really incorporates more on intellectual developmental disabilities throughout the, the training. And it's designed to really support law enforcement agencies as they implement different types of crisis response in their communities. So it has a, um, you know, an actual curriculum with it. It's available for free right now uh, through the Bureau of Justice Assistance website. And that's, I'm sure in the show notes, um, we provide the links to all that. So that's one um, uh, new type of training that's available to officers now. And, and, and I should say that is a 40 hour training. So that's a full week, just like CIT. And another type of training is the Pathways to Justice training, which is the one that our center offers. And it's, um, it's different in that we are trying to reach not only law enforcement on the same training day, but also victim service providers and the legal system. So um, we work with communities to establish what's called disability response teams. And this is really more of a, let's get in front of the crisis before it happens. So instead of thinking of it as a crisis intervention, we're trying to kind of sell this idea of crisis prevention. And how do we start having these conversations before that crisis gets here? And that's what our Pathways to Justice training is doing is we're working with different disability response teams throughout the country to um, be prepared for when that crisis comes. And then we actually talk about on that training day within little teams, um, what would we do differently? What's missing in our community 
Why aren't we able to serve this population? Why do they keep cycling in and out of the system? So all of those kinds of questions, we really want to raise awareness that, you know, not one um, professional group can solve this. Not one advocacy group can. It's just not possible. So we need to bring together law enforcement with the community and especially the disability community to start hashing out like what makes sense for our community. And so that's another great um, uh, alternative and, and uh, option for training for law enforcement that we like to, to let everyone know about. So again, that'll be uh, in the show notes as well. Great. Yeah, we have those links and, and our listeners and viewers can just click on the notes below and, and check out the links that you're talking about. You often in your literature, you talk about false confessions and people who are in jail who shouldn't be there. You yeah. know, law enforcement officers responding want to gather that information and solve the crime. What's your position on someone who may want to confess or volunteer uh, information, maybe to please the officers? Um, what's what's What do you say to the individual and the responding law enforcement officer? Yeah, that's a really important one. And another reason why I got real interested in this work, because there wasn't, at that time, I don't even think there was anything like a, a modified Miranda, which now we do have. Um, so in our training, we talk about um, using something like a modified Miranda, which is essentially breaking down the Miranda into more plain language. That's a huge topic of discussion in the IDD field, because you can imagine that language is a barrier if people don't understand things. Sure. Uh, so to create equal access to the system and to police, how do we create language like using plain language um, to, to make things more easily understandable? So um, what that then looks like is, say, after each piece of the Miranda, you would pause and say, now, can you explain back to me in your words, what I just said. Mm -hmm. And that will tell you real quickly how much someone is really understanding. I mean, let's face it, the Miranda is not that easy to understand anyway for anyone. Um, but you want people to understand that they have rights. They can ask for an attorney. And a lot of times they don't understand that. People with disabilities like intellectual developmental disabilities may have never received any training on this topic to know what to do if this happens. And, um, and there has been um, some training to kind of look into this issue, but it may be too one-sided in saying that always the officer is your friend. When we know that an, if an officer is there to investigate, the officer has a different role. So we really wanna make sure that they understand all of these different roles. And if an officer thinks that someone may have a disability, then they can you know, make sure that there's someone there, a support person, someone to help communicate, make sure that um, if you're going to all this length to bring someone in to investigate, you want that to be a tight case, but that's not gonna happen if you have someone just parroting back what you want to hear. And we do know that this you know, can easily happen. People with IDD are highly suggestible um, they're more vulnerable in these situations and they want to be accepted. They want to be liked. And if there's this officer asking them questions, they want to be friends with you. 
Um, so that can be a very difficult situation that you, you have to think twice about how you're going to get um, accurate information. Um, so yeah, I think that's a good, I'm glad you raised that point because that's something we, we really like to bring up to officers who may not know this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great information there. Uh, I want to talk more about support and training to get to better outcomes. But first, I'd like to take a moment and thank our sponsor. Officer Store, equipping protectors with passion. That's how we operate, and it's how we live. We understand that having the right gear can mean the difference between life and death. Our goal is to get you the gear you need, when you need it, at prices you can afford. Visit us at officerstore.com. And we're back, and I'm speaking with Leanne McKingsley, the Senior Director of disability at the ARC, and she's helping us identify and understand interacting with people with intellectual and devel de developmental disabilities or IDD. There's a joke in there somewhere, but I'm not <laughs> going to make it. Uh, you, you're, you've brought up some great information so far. Can you tell us about how training has, I mean, any examples of training that did create better outcomes than traditional methods, say? Yeah, um, so I mentioned earlier our Pathways to Justice training, and um, we had, we've had we had a couple of publications where we've been able to shine a light on some of the successes that we've had. And in one, um, in one state in particular, and uh, I believe it was in New Jersey, um, we had created a disability response team. Uh, the officer never had this type of training on IDD, and just within a week or so, a case had come up where because he was involved in that team, he was able to call the ARC, and they were able to um, keep the person from going into the criminal justice system because the officer then understood uh, more about the disability. So we've been getting calls like that from those who've done, who've taken the training and have been able to reach out to um, people with knowledge about IDD. Um, one of the things that we also like to talk about is um, when it comes to understanding disability issues, we're not trying to create uh, PhDs. <laughs> you don't have to be a doctor to make a huge impact on someone's life. So um, in this case, you know, this particular officer, it took one, one training and getting connected and it changed a person's trajectory. Um, I think that, I wish that we could document every time that happens. I feel like if we could, you know, do more research on that and have better numbers on how often people are getting steered away when they should not be going into the system, then we could, you know, have a lot more, I think, interest in this area and maybe more funding <laughs> to do the work. Yeah, no, it's it's surely needed. Uh, places like the National Center of Missing and Abducted Children mm -hmm. in Arlington, Virginia, they put on free training there, on-site training, but they also go across the country. Now, I see that you're writing a crisis intervention guide and updating the ARC's pathway to justice training. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I had um, kind of talked about that earlier and the tr the CRIT training, but I didn't get to go into some detail. This has been exciting because we're able to partner with a, a few different agencies on this. 
Um, one of them is the, the International Association of Chiefs of Police, um, Policy Research Associates, and the University of Cincinnati. And while we know that there is plentiful training um, in, in law enforcement world, uh, probably sometimes more than, <laughs> than you all want, um, we do wanna make sure that there is enough training on disability issues and intellectual and developmental disabilities specifically. So this crisis response intervention training allowed us the opportunity to bring more information in on intellectual and developmental disabilities specifically. And um, similar to our pathways training, another key point that we're really wanting to usher into the um, kind of uh, as we think about police training in the future is bringing in people with disabilities themselves as co-trainers. So we want officers to see that people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, they can be co-trainers. They can do a lot of things that maybe people in society don't think that they're that they have the potential to do. So just that in and of itself can really help address any stigma or bias um, or you know, just not understanding the disability. So I think that more than anything is what I'm really excited about because as we've seen that happening in our pathways trainings and then we were able to pilot the CRIT training and we saw that unfold um, in a training in Oregon, it really kind of brings a different understanding uh, to police about what people with disabilities are capable of, who they are, um, just building the relationships between the disability community and the policing community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you, you bring up a great point about the stigma and, you know, across the board in situations where maybe we, we want to maintain some privacy about a disability or a situation as I teach at a university and sometimes I'll get a private um, notice that uh, one or two students in my classes may need special attention. And so that's between me and them. Uh, officers occasionally um, re respond multiple times for the same people in their, in their cities or in their districts. Uh, sometimes it's um, a senior maybe with dementia who just keeps leaving the home, gets lost. Uh, you know, there's a search, and, and sometimes that might happen a couple of times uh, a month. Um, would we ever be talking about something like a a bracelet, like a medic alert bracelet, or something that would help us identify people to give us like an early warning that we should be paying attention to something else? Yeah, so I've definitely seen an increase in registries. What we often see are registries where people can um, sign up with their police department or maybe it's the city in some fashion to just alert officers um, that if someone you know is coming upon a scene and they see a certain bracelet or they can ask for certain identification. Um, there has been an increase in that as a potential solution to some of these issues. Uh, we do want to be careful with that, though, because we don't want to assume that that's going to be um, like the main thing that addresses all of the issues involving people with IDD in the system. Um, and privacy issues are a concern. You know, some people may not want to wear something that identifies them, and that's their right if they don't want to wear that. We actually have a, pro, a project that we're working with IACP right now called Project Home Safe. 
that's dealing with this very issue. And we created some publications on the pros and cons of using um, like a locative technology and um, thinking through like, when, when is it needed? Why is it needed? How do families make that choice? And we had some officers in webinars related to this saying that that should be the last resort. They have family members, they have children with autism or other IDDs, and they feel like, you know, trying to, having to track someone should be a last resort and all these other things should be taken in consideration. Mm -hmm. And it should always come alongside with training. So while that can be uh, something to alert officers, it can't be the thing that we count on. And in some situations, in fact, I was just reading one regarding the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, even if an officer knows that a disability um, is present, that doesn't guarantee that the, the behavior will change or that their response will be different. Mm -hmm. So the reason you wanna know if a disability is present is so you can change your response and hopefully deescalate a situation. But officers can't do that if they don't know what the strategies are to deescalate. So for all of those reasons, I think we have to kind of um, hold that gently and think very thoughtfully about identifying folks. And I don't think I gave you that, um, that information, but um, I'd be happy to provide that later, just our fact sheets on that topic. Okay, awesome. That's great. You know, it's been my own history, and I've heard stories, uh, situations where there's an individual in crisis, um, maybe within the house or maybe outside, uh, where there's been some forewarning. Uh, maybe there's a statement that says, hey, something really bad's going to happen today, or even maybe somebody will die today. Uh, what are the responsibilities? I wanted to say obligations, but they're really the responsibilities of family and friends who who hear this and then go on about their their business. Uh, what what should they be doing, and what should what should police know? I mean, sometimes we get these calls, and uh, he's up in the room, and the behind a closed door, it's a box of chocolates, right? We open the door, we never know what we're going to get inside. Mm -hmm. What should the family, do we have training or information for families to know what they should be doing and saying? Yeah, that's a, a very good question. Um, I do think it's, you know, it's a scary thought, right? For any of us, if we're a parent or have anyone we care about on um, having to think about what could happen if my um, son with autism is raped what could happen if my daughter with autism is held up and has a knife? Um, I think it's scary situations for people to think about. So we don't necessarily want to make a plan of action for that. But I think in, in a number of situations, though, with behavioral health uh, or within schools with different IEPs, individualized education plans, different plans can help prepare families. So um, you may have heard of like safety planning for crime victims, um, similar to developing a safety plan so that someone would know what to do if they were victimized. Uh, families can develop a, like a, a plan for crisis and make sure that they know what to do when they see certain red flags. Mm -hmm. Like I said, a lot of this can be built into their um, IEPs and schools or once that they're they're out of school, um, working with their caseworkers, having a plan of action so that 
we know what to do. Mm-hmm. I think the scariest thing is waiting till it's right in front of you and then nobody knows for sure. So I think even the family can get paralyzed in that and go, what do we, and, and you know, a lot of the shame around that, mm-hmm. a lot of the fear, the stigma, all of that. And so getting ahead of that and starting to create those plans way before that situation is really what we want to see happen. But we see even in the world of future planning for families with their kids and their um, adult children with disabilities, even that is difficult. So we're trying to get people to think ahead, whether it's future planning for what happens to my child when I die, or whether it's what if they get in a situation and we need to be prepared if they're victimized, if, um, you know, a behavior occurs and an officer needs to come just to be as prepared as as possible. I know some families reach out to their law enforcement way before anything, um, just to make sure that those, those officers know, you know, this is our situation. This is what you, you may come uh, across when you come here. Uh, So the more that everyone is on the same page and is aware, you know, the more likely that situations can turn out safe for everyone. Yeah, that's great advice. Um, I've met with some people on on planning and just a simple, if there's a call to 911 dispatch, just for dispatch to be able to say, just, you know, keep the individual in a common area, sitting on the couch, uh, turn on the TV or whatever they want to do, but don't let them go up into their bedroom and close the door because then that's that just, it's another situation with some mystery behind it just to keep people in in plain view yeah and and you know that's a that's a um a line we walk carefully because a huge piece of what the arc advocates for is inclusion you know and we want all people to be included in our society Mm -hmm. um we don't want people to look at someone with an intellectual disability and because the behavior is different think automatically jump to there's something wrong Mm -hmm. or criminalizing someone because they have a disability, Mm but you know, in our, in our day and age and in our society where we're at now, people are scared a lot of times. And so it's important just to realize that, uh, the characteristics of someone with autism, maybe, you know, they have certain, um, characteristics or behaviors that they do that are so normal for them. And what may seem abnormal to others, we have to really remember that inclusion means we all, you know, can exist together and we don't have to fear what we don't know. We just have to learn about what we don't know. For sure. Yeah. I mean, my, my question was along the lines of when there's something happening beyond somebody's control, there are limited options of who they can pick up and call. And there's a three digit number that people love to call for every situation. And you know, it begins (laughs) with a number nine. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And now we have a 988 number. (laughs) Right. Make it more interesting. And we've actually been working on that. Um, We have been looking at our different chapters throughout the country and asking, you know, have has your chapter been involved in talking about how 988 could work for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities too? So we wanna make sure that anyone that has um, a mental health disability or IDD can access the 988 number and um, can 
make sure that we get a response that is not necessarily um, from the law enforcement, but from a better source who actually has the uh, the time, opportunity, and training to address those issues. So I do think that we have some hope um, in going in a different direction, but that still, we still have a ways to go because we still have to get enough of the resources in place so that when people do call 988, there's actually something there for them. And at, you know, you know from law enforcement that anytime we have this conversation in our trainings, you know, officers always say, well, that's great. We'd love to refer them. Tell us where. Right. And so it's that circular problem, you know, and it's like, that's why we need to have the crisis prevention focus, because we have to start looking at what is actually there for people and what do we have to do to get more resources to people so that they're not always calling 911 and 988. Right, right. Well, you are doing some great work and you are pushing the boundary and getting people informed. You've got some great websites, your own, the Pathways to Justice, Informed Police Responses, and of course, the ARC.org. Great work you're doing, Leanne McKingsley. Thank you for what you do. Well, thank you. And I really appreciate this opportunity. Um, anytime we can get the word out about this, we really want to help law enforcement with that. Every little bit helps. For sure. Well, thanks for taking time with us today. And uh, I'm sure you're going to get a couple of contacts about people for your services and training. And I hope so. I hope our listeners enjoyed uh, hearing from you and about the, the programs and the really important issues for people with intellectual disabilities and de developmental disabilities. So thanks again. Thank you so much. All right, to our listeners, I hope you enjoyed the show today. Drop me a line and let me know at policingmatters at policeone.com. Policingmatters at policeone.com and let me know what you think. All right, take good care, be safe, and talk to you again real soon.